You're listening to a podcast from Columbia Christian Fellowship in Columbia, Pennsylvania. Our services are weekly at 10 a.m. We hope to see you there. You can see we have many folks on vacation, well-needed rest, and our hearts are with them, but our focus is with you. Our hearts are with those who are away. Our focus is on those who are here today, and God knew who was going to be here, and he tailored this message for you. You believe that? So today, you know, we've been going through the study in the book of Acts, and we're We're now entering Acts chapter 9. Maria, if you'll come. Congregation, if you'll stand, we'll honor God's word. I know you just got nice and comfy. This is to keep you from falling asleep when I preach. So, wait, hold on a moment there. Good, we'll give give honor to God's word. Maria's going to read Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for the cooperation and arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, A light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up, go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. The man with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. Thank you, Maria. Congregation, you may be seated. So Acts chapter 9 begins, and it's the account of a man named Saul. We'll probably spend several weeks on this, probably at least three sermons on this on this passage, not just one through nine, but the rest of the chapter. Now, if you remember, we met Saul a few weeks ago at the execution of Stephen. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, he likes to introduce characters into the narrative before they actually become the main character. Interesting note, after Acts chapter 9, verse 30, Saul disappears. Luke introduces a character, and then they disappear for a while. Two and a half chapters later, Saul's going to return into the narrative. Luke leaves Saul, and he begins again to focus on Peter and some of the others. But for today, the focus is on Saul. We met him before. Maybe you remember this. Acts chapter 7. They rushed at him, meaning Stephen. They dragged him out of the city. They began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats, and they laid them at the feet of a young man named 
a young man named Saul. We met Saul before, back in Acts chapter 7. Saul was one of the witnesses to this, to this execution. He agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. But Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. Boy, at this first introduction, Saul's not a very nice guy. He was actually a religious terrorist. Terrorists and terrorism is nothing new. He hasn't gotten any better by the time we get to Acts chapter 9 when he's back in the narrative again. Check out these opening verses. Saul was still uttering threats with every breath, and he was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressing letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus. He was asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way, followers of Jesus. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. Saul was an equal opportunity terrorist. Men, women, and children. If anything, he's now become even more possessed than he was at the execution of Stephen. He's even more possessed with persecution, persecuting the followers of Jesus. Historical accounts say he was brutal. He wasn't content with just dispersing them from their homes and homeland. He wasn't just content with harassing them. He decided to pursue them wherever they fled. He created terror for that first generation of believers. They could not escape it. Listen to his explanation that he later gives of himself. These are Paul's own words talking about these days. He says this later in the book of Acts, but he's talking about these days, his before Christ days. Acts chapter 26, verse 11. Many times I had them punished in the synagogues to get them to curse Jesus. I was so violently opposed to them. I even chased them down in foreign cities. Relentless, brutal terror against followers of Jesus. Madman on the loose. However, something amazing is about to happen, and we're just going to cover the very first part of that today. Today's title is The Conversion of Saul. Least likely, The Conversion of Saul, Part 1. Today's objective, lessons to be learned for us from the conversion of the Apostle Paul. Basically, simple message today. I'll try and keep it short. (laughs) But two main points. We already know them, but God wants to reemphasize them to us today because they're so important in the days ahead for the church. Two main truths. It's going to show us, again, a glimpse into who God is and what drives him. What's his passion above all other passions? But let's first look at the story as a whole, get a feel for what Maria read for us. It extends past what we read today, but we're just going to stick with what Maria read today. Acts chapter 9, 3 and 4. 
as he, Saul, was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground. He heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Don't just skip over this. Just don't read this ink on the page. Look at the story that it's telling. Look at the truth that it's revealing. A light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground. He heard a voice calling his name. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? A question. This happened on a road that was headed into Damascus. You know, sometimes we, we think of the scripture as something, a fantasy, some mystical place. You know, this happened in Damascus. Present day Damascus in present day Syria. Damascus, by the way, is reputed to be the oldest continually inhabited city of the world. This happened on earth in real life to real people. This isn't fiction. It's not fantasy. It's not imagination. Saul has this amazing spiritual encounter. He saw light from heaven, described later as more brilliant than the sun. He fell to the ground, probably dazed by the brilliant light, knocked him to the ground. Have, have you ever been knocked to the ground by an encounter with the Lord? I actually have. It's an amazing thing. I didn't see the brilliant, dazzling light, but I knew God knocked me out of my chair to the floor of my office because he wanted me to know something. He wanted me to know something that I wasn't willing to believe. And I had been resisting and resisting, losing my joy, losing my joy, become more, more and more irritable. And when I was asking the Lord about it, he knocked me from my chair onto the floor of my office and said, you're not believing the word that I gave you on Sunday. And I said, I don't understand that word. That's why I've been resisting it. But I am willing to believe it. I am willing to receive it. It's not worth it. And immediately, all that turmoil left and peace and joy flooded in again. And that word still rattles around within me. And it still hasn't been fully fulfilled. And I still don't fully understand it. But I will definitely receive it and not resist it. Just a little side note application. If God gives you a word, receive it. Don't resist it. He also heard a voice, and it was an unmistakably audible voice. The men with him heard it as well. But in another place, it says that the other, to the other men, it just sounded like thunder. They couldn't discern any words. Only Saul could. He heard his name spoken or called aloud, aloud two times. This was definitely a supernatural encounter. Experienced by and touched the physical senses. This was not a dream. This was not a vision. He saw. He fell. He heard. Paul's response. Who are you? Who are you, Lord? 
S-O-L-O-S. And the reason that word Lord isn't capitalized is because at that time, he was using the, a common word just to refer to some dignitary. Because he didn't know what exactly was going on yet. So it's a small L for Lord. Who, who are you, Lord? And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one whom you are persecuting. Now get up, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Further proof that this was not some sort of mystical, unreal experience, that this was a, a genuine encounter, was conversation then ensued between the Lord and Saul. Who are you, Lord? Saul asked a question from his prone position on the ground. My guess is rather meekly. He didn't know it was Jesus at this point. Probably Jesus would have been his last guess. Because he was firmly convinced Jesus was dead and in the grave and had disappeared. He did know it came from heaven. He did know that it was supernatural. And he did know that it was divine in origin. But my guess is he had no clue it was Jesus. So I am Jesus. Jesus responds to Saul's question. Jesus wastes no time identifying himself. And this had to rock Saul's world. And it did. As we'll see in the weeks ahead, it did. It's evidence in his letters. There's at least two, two things that Saul never forgot. Saul who became the Apostle Paul. There's two things that he never forgot. He keeps referring to them in his letters, in his epistles. They actually became driving forces in his life. One was the stoning of Stephen. He mentions it at least three more times in the book of Acts. And especially, he was impressed with the glorious way in which Stephen died, how Stephen faced death, unafraid and full of glory. That impressed Saul the terrorist. You wouldn't have known it at that time. We know it later from how he writes. The other thing that affected him profoundly that never left his mind, his thinking, and drove his behavior was this conversion experience. He speaks of it throughout the book of Acts and many times in his letters. So at this point, right now, we're talking about Saul, not the Apostle Paul. At this point, Saul is in a, a huge dilemma. Think about this with me. If this truly is Jesus, then the ramifications are huge. The religious leaders that he greatly respects, followed, and is serving were wrong. They were wrong about Jesus. He was wrong about Jesus. Probably worse in his thinking, the Christians were right about Jesus. Follow this progression. And then to make it even worse, Saul, who was a God-fearer and actually, believe it or not, loved the God of his Judaic, his Judaic religion, He's in big trouble with God. 
Can you imagine the progression that's going through his mind as he's laying on this road to Damascus, having this encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, whom he didn't believe in, who he thought was dead, and he was persecuting the Lord's followers. Honestly, he never got over that. So many times we've tried to figure out what the thorn in Paul's flesh was in 1 Corinthians 12. And many say it was an illness, which doesn't fit the context or the wording at all. It was not an illness, or it would say it was an illness. It was a thorn in his flesh that came from a messenger from Satan to buffet him. And the most likely explanation is it was the memory of who he was before he became the Apostle Paul. And what he did to the Lord's followers, whom now he loves with all his heart. This is huge. Saul was zealous for the God of his fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. To be on the wrong side of something that God was doing? And if this Jesus is really of God, possibly actually is God, which we now know he is, the ramifications for Saul are devastating. He just knows that he has received some instructions, get up, continue into Damascus because you're going to be told what you must do. He has no clue what that is. Is the hammer going to come down? Also, just notice something briefly that we learned last week. Jesus gives very specific instructions. If we're listening, he doesn't leave things up for chance. He tells us what he wants us to do. Now get up, go into this city, you'll be told what you must do. The rest comes next week as far as that goes. Next slide. The men with Saul stood speechless. They heard the sound of someone's voice, but they, they saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days, he did not eat or drink. This was huge. I think if this happened to us, we'd remember it the rest of our lives as well. And I can honestly say to you, I didn't have any of the physical manifestations. But my salvation experience, after so many years of just seeking everything else but the Lord and resisting him, my salvation experience was a night today death to life experience i've been saved over 41 years now and i can remember it like it was yesterday so this ends part one of the story of saul's conversion the conversion of saul we'll pick it up next week this time we want we want to move into what lessons can we learn from this account is there anything we can take from this story for us today? And I had said at the outset, there are two lessons we want to take away from this passage. They're both very common knowledge. We've heard them before. But God wants to reemphasize them to us again today. Make sure that we understand and it's inserted in us for the days ahead. It's a general time. The first one is a general timeless truth about God. It's a, a general timeless truth about the nature of God, of who God is, and what is of utmost importance to God. There's no question about this from Scripture. What we're going to say 
this is the most important thing to God. There's a lot of important things to God. But there's one that far outscales them all. It's on the screen. Good place for an amen. amen. Nothing matters more to God than lost souls coming to know him. This is actually a motto of our denomination, the CMA. Lost souls matter greatly to God. Would you say that with me? We're going to say this three times together. Lost souls matter greatly to God. Lost souls matter greatly to God. Lost souls matter greatly to God. Now, we already know this. If you've been coming here for any length of time, you should know this. But it will do us well to review and rehearse it again. It's a truth that is especially relevant in these days ahead. My own opinion, we cannot fathom just how much lost souls matter to God. Because they don't really matter that much to us. We're moving that way. We are. But we have a hard time understanding how much they matter to God and how much it drives his behavior because they don't matter all that much to me. And it really doesn't drive our behavior. It really doesn't drive our lives. It's not really what we live for. Good place for an honest amen. It's not really what we live for. Today we're going to try and get a grasp on this truth of how much lost souls really matter to God. God, help us. Let me take you to a very familiar verse, John 3, 16. This is how much God loved the world, human souls, people. He gave his one and only son. Think about it. Now, we've been, most of us have been Christians for a while, and we don't look too bad on the outside. But think about some of the folks that we know or folks we read about in the news, evil personified, and God gave his son for them. That's how much lost souls matter to God. God gave his son for Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler never turned to God, never accepted his son, never accepted his provision. But God gave his son for Adolf Hitler. This is how much God loved the world, human souls, people. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Lost souls matter that much to God. He gave his one and only son, Jesus. This is a glimpse into the nature of God. You willing to learn something today about God? All right then, nudge your neighbor and say, we're going to learn something about God. God is love. Scriptures clearly says that's in 1 John. God is love. God loves others. God loves human beings. God loves lost souls. He does not want any to perish. Meaning, he does not want anyone to spend eternity apart from himself. Here's the teaching. This is why God created man in the first place. To spend eternity with him. 
God longs to dwell in intimacy with mankind, with you, with you, with me. That's hard to believe, isn't it? God wants to dwell in an intimate relationship with me. I know me. Why would he ever want that? Now, don't, don't be mistaken. God himself is completely sufficient in and of himself. God doesn't need anyone. God doesn't need anything to become complete. He's all in all. He's perfect. You can't get any better. That's God. But Scripture says he is love. And because of that, he greatly desires to share himself with others. See, God doesn't need anything, but he can't exist alone because he's love. He needs to share himself with others for their sake. He needs to share himself with us for our sakes. Not for his sake, for our sakes, because he's love. Love must share itself with others. When you're really feeling love towards someone, what do you want to do? The normal tendency is you want to do something for them. Because, see, love must share itself. True love must share itself with others. It can't be self-contained. It can't be selfish. It can't be self-centered. Love must share itself with others. It's completely selfless. Above all other desires, God wants a family. It's hard to believe about God, isn't it? But above all other desires, God wants a family. That's why he created the human family. That's why he created man and woman in his own image to be with him. And he put them in families to illustrate the desire of his heart. Family. And of course, Satan is having a heyday with that today, the last few decades. He's destroying families. And that's bad in itself, but it's worse because it's destroying the representation of what God's trying to communicate to us. God created the human family in his image. Male and female, he made them. And he created the human family to be with him, with whom he could share his love. Unfortunately, and you know this, this, this plan for a family, this plan for the family of man was brutally interrupted in Genesis 3. Instead of embracing God's plan, Man dwelling with God on earth in intimacy, intimate relationship. Mankind spurned and turned away from God. Turned away from his love. Now we picture God as this sovereign, sometimes this big ogre. Well, that didn't hurt him. Can you imagine the insult that was to God, to his love, and all that he did for mankind? And mankind said, no, thank you. Mankind turned away from God. God never turned away from man. God never gave up on the plan. He has been on a quest ever since to get mankind back. At a great cost, great sacrifice to himself. We see it in this verse on the screen. It cost him his son, Jesus. And speaking of Jesus... Luke chapter 19, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who are lost. Lost souls matter greatly to Jesus as well. This is a glimpse now into the nature of Jesus, 
of who Jesus is and what drove his life and what drives him. Lost souls matter greatly to Jesus. Jesus is the exact, exact representation of God. Jesus is God. And as God, Jesus is all about lost souls. Primary motivation of all he does. Jesus reflects the heart of the Father for lost souls. He was willing to sacrifice his earthly life for the sake of the plan. Plan A was that God would give his son Jesus for man and his son Jesus would give his life for man. God gave Jesus, Jesus gave his life for one reason, that we could be restored and reconciled into that relationship with God because he's love and he has to share himself with others and he desires a family and he's calling us into his family I hope you realize that's what this whole thing is all about. He saved you to call you into his family so he could share himself with you. And icing on the cake is while we're here, we get to serve him and tell others this and draw them into the family. And then one day, that assignment for each one of us is over and we'll go home and we'll be forever with the Lord in an intimate relationship. But while we're still here, we get to serve him and draw others into the family. Come and meet my father. Come and meet my older brother, Jesus. Come and meet my brothers and sisters. Oh, wait a minute. That might not be such a good idea. Just kidding, people. That's a joke. That's a joke. Come and meet my brothers and sisters. I would invite anybody to come and meet us. Are we perfect? Heck no. But I would invite anybody to come and meet us and feel the love of God through us. So from the screen, the whole purpose of Jesus was to redeem and reconcile lost souls back to their creator, their heavenly father. It's the primary reason. Okay, listen to this. The primary reason Jesus came to earth was to bring lost souls back to the father. The primary reason he hasn't come back yet is because those lost souls haven't all been brought into the family. The Lord isn't really slow about his promise to return, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but everyone to repent. Lost souls matter greatly to Jesus. It's the primary reason Jesus came to earth in the, fir the first time. It's the primary reason he has not yet come back the second time. Anybody out there? Anybody think this is true? Worthy of a so be it? Worthy of an amen? amen. Worthy of a, even like a preach it, pastor? Now there's a second lesson. First lesson, lost souls matter greatly to God. Second lesson, God will go to great length to reach one lost soul. How much lost souls matter to God is evidenced by the great lengths God will go to reach lost souls. I know he went to great lengths to reach me. You? I did enough that he could have easily said, forget him, I'll get somebody else. He relentlessly pursued me. And unbeknownst to me, he was relentlessly pursuing my wife at the same time, but we never talked about it with each other. We were married. Uh, yeah, that's right. That's why we weren't talking. We were married by then. 
Ouch. But I can stand here and look you in the eye and say, if we wouldn't have met Christ, this is going to be a good place for an amen, Deb. If we wouldn't have met Christ, we would not be together today. Amen. Saved our marriage. We saw how much one lost soul matters to God in this beginning of the conversion of Saul. The length that God went to reach him. And look at what Saul was doing at the time. We saw it last week with the Ethiopian, gover Ethiopian government official. God took Philip away from a successful evangelistic campaign in the city full of lost souls to a desolate desert place, a road on the way to Ethiopia, to meet a man of completely different ethnicity, a Gentile, and lead him to Christ. All that for one soul. Jesus tried to communicate this heart for lost souls to his disciples a number of times. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them wander away, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others on the hills and go out to search for the one that is lost? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he will rejoice over it, more than over the 99 that didn't wander away. In the same way, it is, in the same way, it is not, hmm. In the same way, it is not my heavenly Father's will that even one of these little ones will perish. A shepherd with a heart of passion for each and every sheep, each one extremely important. A picture of God's heart towards the lost, the great length that God will go for the sake of one lost soul. He did that for you. If you know the Lord today, he did that for you. He relentlessly pursued you. You spurned him. You turned away from him for a while, and he relentlessly pursued you. That's amazing because you know he's perfect in all his ways. He's completely holy. We are sinners. Our hearts are despicable upon our, ab above our ability to know that. But it says he bore the contradiction of sinners against himself. He was willing to come into your life and my life when we were despicable sinners. The extent of God's love for lost souls is beyond our ability to comprehend. Suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp, sweep the entire house, search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she'll call in her friends and neighbors and she'll say, Rejoice with me because I have found my lost coin. Singular. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. When you finally gave in to God and you gave your heart to Jesus and you brought him into your life, there was a party in heaven on your behalf. Light a lamp. Sweep the entire house. Search carefully, diligently, relentlessly until the one coin is found represents the great lengths and effort God will go for one lost soul. There are other stories as well. The prodigal son, you know that one. Jesus went to great lengths. God goes to great lengths to reach one soul. And when Jesus completed his ministry assignment, just before he went home to the Father, he commissioned his followers to carry on his heart for the lost. Go and make disciples of all the nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. 
Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. Be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. In essence, Jesus is saying, my heart for the lost is to become your heart for the lost. My mission to the lost is to become your mission to the lost. John 14, 12, we've been quoting and teaching on and praying into for a while. Anyone who puts their trust in me will do the things that I have been doing and even greater things. And we've been mostly relating that to those miraculous works. But it's also talking about the heart of Jesus for the lost. My heart is now to be your heart. My mission is to be your mission. What are you living for? You say you're a follower of me. What are you living for? I lived to reach lost souls. I gave myself for that cause. Are you? Or are, more earth, are earthly things more important that will fade away? Lost souls will last forever. These things of earth will fade away. What are you giving yourself to? Church? Not just CCF. Church? What am I giving myself to? What am I really living for? Jesus speaking, I am imparting my heart to you, and you will carry on my mission. Seek and save those who are lost. Here's the conclusion. Before I uh, give the conclusion, Jamie, if you'll come, make your way up here to close the message in prayer. When Jamie is done praying, please just remain as you are, and Ray's going to come, and he has something to share with us. Here's the conclusion of the matter. It's very simple. Lost souls matter greatly to God. God will go to great lengths to reach a lost soul. Do you feel his heart beating in you today. Please stand. Jamie, you'll come and pray, and then Ray, you'll come and share. Let's pray. First of all, Father, I want to thank you for your great love for us. Each and every one of us, Lord, we, we really can't describe it, put it into words. We just have to experience it and encounter it. And I thank you, Lord, for uh, the day that I met you and, and for you pursuing me and coming into my life as my personal Savior. I thank you so much that you didn't give up. And I thank you for the transformation that you did in my life and you've done in everyone's life in here. And thank you for the transformation that you did for Saul. And Lord, for your word that speaks that and shows us that and teaches us that, how true it is. Father, I'm just going to ask you right now that uh, you would put it in each of our hearts to have a heart like you that our mission would truly become your mission. As difficult as it is and uh, hard to understand, but 
we are beginning to understand it more and more, Lord. So I'm just asking you in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, who paid that price for us, that you would instill in us more and more each day your mission and that we would live your mission more and more each day, that the things of the world would grow strangely dim. So, Father, we just want to thank you. We want to praise you because you are a great, big, loving God, and you deserve all the glory, all the praise, and all the honor. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to read Acts 4.30 again. And we understand this will probably be the last time we hear this for a little bit. But it's very, very important. Very important. For you stretch out your hand for healing, signs, and wonders to be performed through your name, the holy, holy servant Jesus. Father, I just pray that you would do that for each and every person here, Lord, and for myself. Lord, I just pray healing as our hands are reached out, stretched out to you, healing on our hearts, Lord, healing on our church and on all the churches, Father, that there could be a great revival, that you would just come back, Father, and just touch each and every one of us, remind us who you are, give us that nudge, heal our hearts. I wrote on the paper up there this morning, give me the heart of a child again. And that's what I pray, Lord. I pray that healing, that there is no, there is no animosity towards anyone, that healing. There is no animosity as we walk amongst other people, people wearing masks, people of different color, people of different religions, that we would just reach out and touch them, Father, as humans, as, as you made us, each and every one. Lord, that just great healing that I just pray you would just just wash over our country. I pray that you would heal our church, heal churches, all churches as the group, Lord, that we could have that revival. Lord, you're great, great, great. There is nothing above you. As pastors preach, Lord, I just felt that nudge at the things that I care about, that I strive for, the different ambitions that I have, the different uh, the different hobbies that I have, Lord, that they are all just waste in your presence, the chaff that gets pushed aside. Lord, I just pray that you would heal my heart. I praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our weekly message. To connect with us, visit our website at blesscolumbia.org.